Support for this podcast comes from Kinney Drugs, celebrating 120 years of providing medications, advice, and quality healthcare products and services. Kinney pharmacists administer all CDC-recommended vaccines to those age 18 and older, including flu, HPV, Tdap, MMR, chickenpox, and hepatitis A and B. They also administer vaccines indicated for older adults, including shingles for age 50+, plus, RSV for age 60+, plus, and pneumonia for age 65+. Plus. Employee-owned and locally committed since 1903. Learn more at kinneydrugs.com. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. The conflict raging between Israel and Hamas continues to take a staggering toll. Over 1,200 Israelis were killed and 230 were taken hostage on October 7th when Hamas militants attacked Israel. In response, Israel has mounted a relentless bombardment and ground invasion that has claimed the lives of one of every 200 Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip and displaced two-thirds of the population. This conflict has reverberated around the world and throughout the Green Mountains of Vermont. Rallies, marches, and vigils have taken place around the state, some that are pro-Israel, others that are pro-Palestinian, or that simply call for a ceasefire. Today on the Vermont Conversation, we hear the voices of Vermonters on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We'll hear first from Rabbi David Edelson of Temple Sinai in South Burlington, who just returned from Washington, D.C., where he joined a national rally supporting Israel. Then we turn to Wafik Faour, a Palestinian who is a member of Vermonters for Justice in Palestine. Next, we talk with Grace Odell, a rabbinical student who works with the Jewish organization If Not Now that is calling for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. She organized a prayer vigil on the State House in Montpelier last month. Finally, we speak with Faoud al-Amudi from the Islamic Society of Vermont about the impact of the conflict on Vermont's Muslim community. My name is David Edelson, and I'm the rabbi at Temple Sinai in South Burlington, Vermont. Rabbi Edelson, I wonder if you could just start by talking about what you are feeling right now about the situation in Israel and Gaza. Well, I'm feeling heartbroken by the whole thing. If the whole thing's a tragedy. It's a tragedy that's not new, but it it doesn't make it less so. I'm feeling unnerved and and um and vulnerable from the rise of anti-Semitism that has come with it. Um, I honestly somewhat expected that the the massacre of 1,400 or 1,200, the updated number, um, Israelis, including at least a 1,000 civilians, would have at least kept some of that anti-Semitism in check for a little while, but that's not what happened. So I've been unnerved by the rapidity with which this has rolled out. And um, and I'm concerned about the people of Israel and the people of Gaza. Where is have you seen this anti-Semitism here in Vermont? I've seen it in um, a congregant whose um, house was uh, graffitied. Um, I've seen it with my junior high school students sharing um, that other classmates have given them, for example, 
the 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 Heil Hitler salute um, and said things that I can't put on the radio. I've had other students that have had somebody toss change at them and say, dance for your money, Jew. Um, we have had um, other such incidents. We've had phone calls and things like that. Fortunately, in Vermont, the, according to the FBI, which we with whom we do speak, um, we don't have any known threats right now in any organized way. Um, but that's a bit of a cold comfort. <laughs> so, you know, so I... I that's how I've been aware of how much uh, that anti-Semitism has risen just in our area. The horror of October 7th, the attacks in Israel, um, you know, the the only thing that has kind of matched that level of, uh, I think, horror for people looking in is is what's happening now in Gaza. What is your response? Um, everybody is seeing these horrific images of destruction in Gaza, of people, you know, being killed. Now over eleven thousand. That seems to go up by, you know, a thousand or so a day. What is your response to that? Well, of course, it's a tragedy, as I said before, and there's no no one would say otherwise. In Judaism, every human life is equal. We are all made in the image of God. We're all one human family and equally valued. So it's heartbreaking and tragic. At the same time in our tradition, if we are attacked, and particularly if the attackers focus on the most vulnerable among you, then you have an obligation not only to self-defense, but to proactively make sure that doesn't happen again. So Judaism holds a complex moral view in which we both pursue peace, but we also defend ourselves. And um, and so when I see that happening, I I think also that I'm not there. I'm not knowing what the people there know. I'm seeing mostly images on social media. And while images are very moving and they are part of the truth they are also not facts and so without minimizing what is evidently happening there i'm not trustful that the onslaught of social media is really reflective so that's one thing that being said i also feel that the primary responsible party is hamas who had a ceasefire and who has been attacking Israel like this, not, not in this large way, but for over a decade, and that no country in the world would tolerate having missile ships shot at them all the time. And, and so it is not a surprise. I shudder to think how America would respond. Um, I know how we did respond after 9-11. Um, the 1400 Israelis or 1200 Israelis proportionally in the U.S. is closer to like 40, 50,000 people. It's an enormous loss. And I just feel that when people expect Israel to react in a way that America wouldn't react, France, Britain wouldn't react, Russia wouldn't react, Ukraine wouldn't react, and that frankly, Palestinians wouldn't react if they had the capacity is just, it demonizes Israel and it's a double standard. And I find it clouds the conversation, which should be minimizing civilian harm and also having everybody on board for 
getting rid of Hamas. Um, and instead, what we see is somehow it just divides between pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian. And frankly, I think that's a tragic oversimplification of the situation. I think it also is an oversimplification of Palestinian identity and Palestinian rules, which are not for me to talk about. But certainly not all Palestinians agree about that. Not all Israelis agree about anything. And so when you present these communities as binaries with all of them are on this side and all of us are on that side, it's not helpful. And I think it's not helpful to any resolution of the conflict. But um, it's certainly not helpful to our discourse here in the U.S. because it's just about casting the other side as the most evil thing that's ever existed. And as soon as we do that, we're part of the problem. A lot of the images that I'm seeing in the news, not social media, are of children, of children being killed, children being in the rubble. And we know that half of the population of Gaza uh, are children. It's an unusually young population. Yes. How is Israel's response not collective punishment? Well, I think that's a good question. Um, I think part of it, but I don't want to dismiss it, but I want to go back to what I said before, which is the answer is probably actually quite complex and not simple, right? And so that's the that's the context in which I'm going to say these things. So I think one of the issues is that there it is half children and war is in some ways always collectively punishing regardless whether it meets that legal category. Certainly anytime when London was attacked, it certainly was collective in a certain way. I think war comes with uh, casualties that are tragic. I think we certainly um, bombed Dresden to rubble, and you know, twenty-six to or more thousand people died in that attack. And we can debate the ethics of that attack, right? But I don't know that we would call it collective punishment. Maybe we would. Um, my 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 point here is that war is messy, and that war against a terrorist organization, particularly that is embedded underground in schools with rocket launchers in schools and from hospitals with um, especially the largest hospital with a large complex under it and other similar things hold as human shields. And that's not all of it. That doesn't excuse all of it. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think it complicates the ethical picture. And um, I certainly wish I was for humanitarian pauses. I'm glad that happened. I think that is necessary. I also understand that in Gaza, some 30% support Hamas, and that they don't look differently than the Hamas fighters. So in those migrations that are running around, I understand that Israel is concerned that Hamas fighters are in, they're definitely in that group. Of course they are. Um, I'm also concerned about 200,000 Israelis that have been displaced by this. But um, certainly the child casualties are heartbreaking. It's always heartbreaking. I, I personally don't, I, I, adult casualties are also heartbreaking. Also, civilian men dying are heartbreaking. Um, so I think there's a, a, a certain amount of uh, emotional overload from, from children and also on the Israeli side in the massacre where they beheaded children, they, uh, they mutilated children who were already dead. Um, so I, I think we can all use the, the, the victimized children for 
um, promotional effect, but I don't know that that makes for sober decisions. Do you think, as you see the response right now, that this makes Israel safer, this level of response? I do, actually. I think at least in the near run, it makes Israeli civilians safer. I'm very concerned in the long run that you're just creating more extremism and that that does not make Israel safer. And if it alienates the local um, countries that have started to make peace, have made peace or have started to make peace with Israel, that does not make Israel safer. However, I also know that it should be Jordan and Egypt and Israel going in after Hamas because all of them have a vested interest in having Hamas gone. And yet instead they like to, or they seem to uh, either they have to for pub their own public opinion, or they choose to stir uh, give in to this kind of anti-Israel or demonizing of Israel rhetoric because their population is enraged by what they're seeing. Um, which is understandable. We're enraged by what we saw on October 7th, but rage is not the same thing as strategy or policy. So I am very concerned that Israel overreacting can create uh, a backlash for sure. I also think Israel is there because it Jews with our history, which has become also painfully evident in the last few weeks, need a place where we are safe. And so it is important that Israel show that it can defend itself. It is important in that neighborhood of the world, which is not our neighborhood of the world, that it shows that uh, attacks like this will be responded to severely. Otherwise, I think that also encourages more attacks and makes Israel less safe. So there's not a perfect choice here. Talk about the role of the occupation, and this is not to justify, you know, attacks on innocent civilians such as occurred on October 7th, nothing justifies. But talk about the role of the occupation, 75 years of occupation of the West Bank, Gaza, um, and the role that you see that that this has played in this and this is that is going to play going forward in continuing to create the kind of rage that has existed for so long and has bubbled over on so many occasions? Well, I think that the um, occupation is um, unnecessary and should have ended a while ago. And it is never okay to hold another people under occupation. I'm certainly no fan of Benjamin Netanyahu. I pro I marched with Peace Now in the 80s and 90s. I, you know, marched against Kahana. I'm on the left of the spectrum of uh, Zionist Jews, and I always have been. So I'm no fan of this government, and I think they have made things a lot worse and created a great deal more hate. And I think that's always tragic. So I think full response, I can't take responsibility, I didn't do it, but certainly the Israeli right-wing government has not been helpful. That being said, the reason Israel has such a right-wing government is also related to Palestinian decisions and Palestinian actions. This is a complex relationship, and to cast one as um, only the victim and the other as completely the perpetrator is not helpful again it's not really what's happening so when uh 
what Israel and certainly uh, Clinton thought were a good peace deal were offered to the Palestinians for an independent state. And it's not my position to say whether they should accept it or not. That's not for me, but which both sides felt it was a good deal. And that was rejected. And a month later, a very organized terrorist reign on civilian Israelis at cafes, in buses, at bus stops started happening that collapsed the Israeli left in overnight. Like it simply went away. So again, Palestinian leadership seems to have had also a bit of a responsibility instead of working cooperatively with the parts of Israel that could make peace to respond with terrorism and against civilians, which no democratic country that could do something about it wouldn't do something about it. And most importantly, it collapsed the allies. In this recent attack, the people that live down near Gaza a lot of those uh, kibbutzim and villages are very active in the peace movement and in the in the occupation movement. I, I hope they will be again, but very few of them are right this minute, right? So there is a in Israel, which I know people consider the Goliath and the Palestinians the David. And the Israeli sense is that yes, we are we have power. That's what. Zionism is meant to mean that Jews have a right to also have power without apology, but it is also a thing that um, they feel themselves in a sea of hostility, not just the Palestinians, but all the Arab armies and, of course, Iran. So re regardless of our analyses, the mentality of both sides is traumatized and very defensive, and it makes it particularly difficult to trust. That's that's how that sort of trauma works. And I just don't I think that the occupation is a complicated result of decades and decades of mistrust and mistrust can't be solved by one side. Many people are calling for a ceasefire. Many people in Vermont are calling for a ceasefire. Some of the other voices on this program. How do you respond to what do you, how do you feel about a ceasefire? I think it's ridiculous. I think they are in the midst of almost uh, at least checking out Gaza City, where most of the activity has been. I think a ceasefire right now is like calling for a ceasefire on D-Day in World War II. You know, war is tragic, but sometimes you, it, you have to take the momentum while you have it. It's a terrorist organization. It moves around very quickly. I don't think a ceasefire would do anything. They were in a ceasefire when this happened. There have been multiple ceasefires with Hamas. So I don't see why right now stopping and letting them regroup would make any sense. And frankly, I think it would result ultimately in many more civilian casualties in Gaza, especially when Hamas has said publicly that they will do this again and again, because what they want is a perpetual state of war because it brings attention to their plight. But it also brings death and destruction to their people. Um, and that is um, also not Israel alone that shares that responsibility. There is a significant generational divide in in support for Israel. In a poll that was conducted uh, about ten days ago, almost sixty percent of those aged fifty and older said that they uh, approved of the way Israel is responding to the Hamas attacks. But only a third of respondents aged eighteen to thirty four 
And as I'm sure you know, that generational divide is also reflected among American Jews who don't see what this whole connection, what this whole Israel thing has to do with their Judaism. How do you respond to that? How concerned are you that younger Jews are by and large leading these movements calling for ceasefire? Well, I think that they're still quite the people that are leading that call. There's a difference between who responds to a survey and who actually goes out and leads the protest. It's actually, I believe, quite a small minority. It's a very vocal minority um, and a very sanctimonious minority. Um, but it certainly reflects a generational divide. And I think a lot of that divide has to do with Jews who can more or less remember the Yom Kippur War and its aftermath when Israel was very, very vulnerable. And the younger people growing up, Israel has always been the dominant power in the region. There is... um, they haven't had that experience of actual Israeli vulnerability. I've also been meeting with a lot of young Jews who feel very differently than those Jews do. And this these events have made them even stronger in their recognition of the relationship to Israel. So I think that moves in many directions in a crisis like this. And I think it is a moving target. It concerns me greatly. Half the Jews in the world live in Israel. So if you're throwing under the bus half of the Jews that remain after the Holocaust, I think that requires some self-reflection because it's easy to say Zionists, we're not Zionists, but Israel is Zionist and the majority of American Jews are Zionists, a vast majority, and even people under 30 identify that Israel has a right to exist. So I think that is just a different art form of anti-Semitism to split the Jewish community, because to say, oh, I'm not against Jews, I'm just against Zionists, it's it's like saying I'm not against the small minority of Jews that I agree with, but I am against the vast majority of Jews. And so I think that's deeply problematic and is not disconnected from the rise of anti-Semitic acts that are happening in the world. So I hear from younger Jews that they object to conflating support for Israel with their spiritual practice of Judaism, and they are very offended by the um, what you're saying, which is to uh, call for ceasefire or to question Israel's right to do these things, or for their support for Israel, that that amounts to anti-Semitism. Why do you say that? I don't think that every person that thinks that there should be a ceasefire is anti-Semitic, whether they're Jewish or not. And if I said something that went that direction, then that, that I offer my apologies. That is not what I meant. What I meant is that we have a problem when people are willing to dismiss half the Jewish people if you're a Jewish person. I think that's problematic. I also think that there are lots of ways of doing Judaism, and they don't need to include Israel. There are lots of ways you can. uh, uh, We were in the diaspora for thousands of years. There's lots of ways of being Jewish. But I also think that in the last century, and certainly in the last 2000 years, Israel is one of the greatest achievements and miracles of Jewish history, especially coming after the Holocaust. And to feel 
conflicted to disagree with its policies, to criticize its policies are completely necessary. Of course we could. Of course we should. I criticize U.S. policies and U.S.'s military responses to things. Of course we should. They all should. We all should. This, If that's, again, what I said at the beginning, if it turns us into binary of right and wrong and who's the evil and who's like, that's not helpful. So if I did that, I apologize. But what I do think is that a lot of self-reflection should be taken at a time like this if your main concern is what other people are thinking about you and how that you can keep your progressive credentials. Frankly, I think we need to push back in the progressive movement at this turn towards anti um, Israel, because it is, you can, if you're really deeply involved, separate anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. But in a day-to-day -day way with most people who don't know much about the history, that that's not what happens. And so I, I worry about it more than I'm judging their intentions. Also on this program, we'll hear from a Jewish Vermonter who supports ceasefire and a Palestinian Vermonter. What is your message to them? That as long as all the leaders in the region benefit and stay in power off this conflict, this conflict will continue. And to try to say one side is a perpetrator and the other side is totally a victim is fitting into a paradigm that is not only not true, it's not helpful, and it never will lead to a lasting peace. Rabbi Adelson, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you. My name is Wafiq Faour, and uh, I am a member of Vermont for Justice in Palestine. I live in Richmond, uh, married to an American. I have two kids, Kamli and Zane. And Kamli, she's... Uh, on Tufts Medical School, and uh, Zane, he's working now for UVM Medical Center. And you are Palestinian? I am Palestinian. I born Palestinian refugee in a refugee camp in Lebanon. Uh, my father and I, my mother uh, became refugees in 1948. Originally, they are from small village on Upper Galilee, uh, 10 minutes from Akka, uh, and they became refugees in Lebanon, got married uh, three years later, and we uh, lived in a refugee camp all the time until I applied uh, through an American organization, American Friends of the Middle, uh, for, uh, in the Middle East, called MDs. It's part of uh, the Quakers to come to a college here. I get accepted in Northeastern University. This is how I ended up here, get married, uh, and uh, stayed here. But my uh, siblings, uh, they still refugees in Lebanon. So, Wafiq, let me start by asking your reaction to the October 7th attacks on Israel and then the current war on Gaza. Uh, the, I, I wasn't surprised that 
something going to happen at one point or another. As you, everybody, maybe they don't know, but Gaza have been living uh, under a complete siege and open air prison for the last 17 years. Uh, so if you are 17 years old, you already lived five wars. Uh, so October 7 uh, didn't come uh, surprise to me. Uh, the only uh, surprise uh, was uh, is a, a conflicting feeling that uh, in one part I had uh, the, the, the sadness what's happening over there and my opposing any kind of violence in general, but in another hand, a hope that something better will come out of it. And I understand a lot of people, they ask about the Israeli prisoners on the hand of the Palestinian resistance on Hamas. But at the same time, uh, the public has to know that there is over 10,000 Palestinian political prisoners on the hand of the Israeli, uh, over uh, 200 uh, of them are children, uh, and there is uh, about 70 Palestinian women. Uh, this kind, uh, the, the, the living in Gaza or living in the West Bank, uh, the daily experience of being under occupation and under uh, a racist apartheid uh, laws that Israel uh, have been enforcing uh, against the Palestinians. Uh, it didn't happen in uh, October 7. It has been for the last 75 years. Uh, so to understand this uh, a pressure over the Palestinians that uh, they have been under direct occupation, there is something going to happen. And this is why the reason of Palestinian resistance. Uh, Hamas, uh, as uh, mainstream media, um, they think the war between only Israel and Hamas, but actually it's between Israel and all the Palestinians. If they were in Gaza, or West Bank, or in 1948, which is a lot of people get arrested recently because they are active for uh, on the peace movement or anywhere around the world. And what so, happened to your family in 1948 with the establishment of Israel? You mentioned that they yeah, fled. We are from a small town called Chab, and my grandfather, mother's side, was one of the biggest landlords on that town. There was a resistance, but at the same time, the Arab Salvation Army told the people to leave uh, and we will fight kind of another day or something like that. My grandfather got killed in 1948. And the reason is not like because they want to kill him, but because he's the landlord and the first law Israeli created is the absentee law. Like we came to this land and the owner was absent. So they put their hand on the land. And on his land now, there is three kipotses 
surrounding that village. Half of my family have been forced out and forced out either out of fear because they heard about massacres similar to what we see now on TV in uh, Dar Yassin, in Bisan, and in other villages. Uh, and uh, there are now Israeli movies and documentaries talking about those massacres, you know? So, uh, and some of members of my family, both sides, they stayed behind, they hid on the caves until uh, the bombardment stopped. Three, four days later, they came back. So my village, have, half of it was destroyed, but not like other 520 some villages have been documented, have been completely destroyed and disappeared from the map. So me, they, yeah. Well, let me ask you, last month you spoke at a prayer vigil on the state house that was sponsored by the Jewish group, If Not Now, and you began by saying that as you drove to the state house, you nearly turned around. Why did you almost turn around? Yes, I remember that day. Uh, we have a group of people want to start healing when Palestinian bodies, until this moment, is still under uh, the 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 bombardments, the death, you know, no food, no electricity, no medicine, uh, no water, you know. Uh, so it's, it's, it, I didn't feel like I belong to healing circle more than it's time us Palestinians, regardless if we are Muslim, Christian, uh, and the Jewish community in the U.S., and in Vermont in particular, uh, uh, face the truth, talk about what brought us to the moment of October 7, instead of hiding behind, oops, if the Palestinians or some people talking about it on the media, Hamas didn't attack, this is wouldn't happen. This is... Uh, we are lying at ourselves, you know, because the genocide was happening. Nobody asked before the day before October 7 and October 6, how many Palestinians got killed in the West Bank. There were three Palestinians. The assassination is continuing. There is over 200 Palestinians get killed in the West Bank on the last month. Uh, uh, and the West Bank is not under Hamas. They were not Hamas fighting over there. There is Israel controlling the streets over there, and there is what's so-called Palestinian Authority. So it is not the war between Hamas and Israel. It's Israel want to subjugate the Palestinian people and take the land. And this is the plan, you know? What is also on this program, we're hearing from a rabbi, we're hearing from uh, another Jewish activist calling for a ceasefire and uh, somebody from the Islamic Society of Vermont. You all have very different views and reactions to this situation. What is your message to them and to other Vermonters right now? 
I, 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 I mean, my message that us and the Jewish people, we don't have a problem as Muslim and Jewish. It is not religious war to start with. And how much you go in, uh, a lot of people going to make it and color it as religious is not, at least not from the uh, point of Palestinian who dream of living together under a secure, secular uh, uh, government. Uh, we are working with many Jewish organizations, Jewish Voice for Peace, if not now, as you saw me go and speak over there. But I hope things will change and we can open channel to talk to each other and work with each other as both to lessen the pain of both people. Thank you. So my name is Grace O'Dell and my uh, regular job is working in food and agriculture here in Vermont. And I am a rabbinical student. I'm also a mom of three kids and I live uh, in Burlington. What are you feeling right now about the situation in Israel and Gaza? And what are you calling for? Hmm. So I am calling for a ceasefire unequivocally right now. I believe that we have a moral and ethical obligation to try to do whatever we can to protect human life. As I mentioned, I'm a mom of three little children, and I know both personally and believe theologically every child is sacred. I cannot um, and will not abide immoral violence being done, which is overwhelmingly affecting children and innocent civilians in the name of keeping Jewish people safe. And I am joining with many, many other Jews all around the country and globe, and including in Israel, say, calling for ceasefire. And you know, to, to be very clear, because this will come up, I condemn the horrible violence that Hamas did on October 7th, and I condemn the horrible violence that the Israeli military has been doing in Gaza in the name of safety since then. To me, these are in no way conflicting ideas. It is my deep love for humans that motivates me to take action for peace, and love that love is never in conflict with, with love. Uh, you know, Judaism teaches us that the that the most important mitzvah is pikuach nefesh, which is protecting a life. We're taught that every person is made b'tselem Elohim in the image of God. Rabbi Hillel famously said that he could teach the entire tradition by standing on one foot. Don't do to your neighbor that which is hateful to you. So I see these as our very core teachings. This these values predate borders and political ideology. Our theology is clear that everyone's sacred. Everyone deserves safety. We have a we have a job as spiritually committed people to act in accordance with those deep values. So right now that looks like calling for a ceasefire. It's the very least we can do. In October, you were one of the organizers of a public mourner's cottage on the steps of the state house. What led you to want to go public with your concerns and and become an organizer? Yeah, I mean, I think that our lives matter. What we choose to say or do really matters. Our actions add up to our culture and our culture is what you know creates the world we live in. I take that responsibility really seriously. 
in terms of why I felt called to pull together a vigil, uh, which was a space to hold a grief ritual, which actually centered the Kaddish prayer, which is the prayer for the people who are in mourning for someone who has died, is that I really think our spiritual and emotional bodies need to process and bear witness to the immense loss that is actually happening right now. And one of the things happening in all around is that people are really overwhelmed, really reactive, really um, extremely emotional. They're they're not able to find a place to slow down and acknowledge this witness, this horrible pain and grief. And I think that that is not allowing us, what centering down into that loss and grief allows us to stop our need to be right or win a political argument or show how tough we are or how powerful we need to get in touch with love. And that is what in at best spiritual practice, prayer practice does is connect us to our deep spiritual selves, which are rooted in love. And once we get in touch with that, we move towards peace. To my mind, finding peace is not pretending that we will ever get to a place of no conflict in this lifetime. Peace is developing a spiritual discipline to move from our deepest values of love, even in the face of conflict. And so that's why I showed up. Why is this conversation around Israel and Gaza been so difficult for you and other Jews to have with one another right now? There are a lot of layers to answer this question, and to really get into it would probably take several books to unpack how it has come to be this charged within the Jewish community. But suffice it to say, I think that very valid intergenerational trauma and also really different uh, generational definitions of what safety is make it really hard to communicate across difference effectively. And there are major schisms that are tending along generational lines, but not entirely so. Uh, in almost every shul and across the country right now, I have been on so many calls with other rabbinical students, with other Jewish organizers, with just Jewish people who are experiencing a real just sense of rupture within within the community that we're really trying to bridge by, again, centering back to what are the core values that we share. Um, and, and you know, I, I think the whole thing is bringing up this deep concern around safety for a lot of people. And it, people are answering what keeps us safe really differently right now. Do you feel like in your conversations you've had any success in kind of reaching somebody who perhaps um, you've been in real conflict around this issue with, particularly within the Jewish community or your congregation or wherever these conversations are taking place for you? Is, is there one that makes you feel like you move beyond just hitting a wall with one another? I don't think peace is going to come in one conversation. I think it's going to be built over a lot of time and steady relationship. And yes, I believe that our own relationships are the place where we have to do this. I don't feel like I have necessarily changed anyone's mind about, well, 
I think that there have been moments of connection across difference when we can get at this place of what are our deepest held values. And I see like today, after we speak, David, there is a mass action in DC led by rabbis. That's a huge prayer vigil and calling for ceasefire. And that has grown week by week, more and more rabbis, more and more Jewish leaders have come along to the idea that not only do we have a role to play in calling for peace, we have an ethical and moral obligation to be involved in that peace process. And I'm going to, I would love to just quote one of those rabbis who is organizing in DC today, Rabbi Margot, um, who is leading prayers, who says that this is her quote. I am a rabbi for ceasefire because I honor my family's history in the Shoah, which is the Holocaust, by living out my belief in the inherent sanctity of all human life, that each of us is created B'Tselem Elohim in the divine image, and to save one life is to save the world. I am a rabbi for ceasefire because of my love for the Jewish people, my deep care for our safety and security, and because deep down in my bones, I know that violence will only beget more violence, that collective punishment and the mass destruction of Palestinian lives will not ensure anyone's safety. I see more and more people who can say, you know what, we don't have to have the answer about what is the fullness of our agreement about the ultimate political solution in Israel and Palestine. That is a very, very tall order. We can't ask for everyone to be in agreement to get into formation and move for peace now. We can move for a ceasefire across a lot of difference, even if we don't have that all in agreement. And that's what's important now because there's real lives on the line. And so to me, that is the move is what can we agree on now and step forward into? We can step forward into calling for a ceasefire. That's what we have to do. A lot of people are feeling a lot of despair and hopelessness as they contemplate this issue. The images that we all see in the media are horrific, uh, starting on October 7th and continuing to this day with, you know, children under rubble in Gaza. What, how do you deal with that despair? How do you keep it from overwhelming you? It's a really good question. I don't ignore or push down the despair and the grief. I let myself feel the fullness of that grief and despair. And I let that despair move me into action. A lot of organizers use this phrase, action is the antidote to despair. Taking that grief is, and grief is really a sense of love. It's a sense that things could be different. It's a sense that we might have something to do with making the things be different. And when you accept, I have a role to play, it can help you move out of a nihilistic place into what Joanna Macy calls active hope, which is this idea that hope is not something you have or you don't have. Hope is a muscle that you build by showing up for the world and by believing that together we can make change happen. And when you start building that muscle, it's hard, but then it starts feeling easier and easier and it starts feeling better and better to use it. And it really puts you in touch with the fact that your life matters and that the way you spend your time matters. And that is an energizing way to feel even when you're holding grief for the world. Uh, the other thing that I do is I, I pray and I get quiet and I try to tap into that feel that connection 
with what is sacred, which is bigger than my lifetime. The work of justice will not be completed in my lifetime. And I have to get really in touch with the fact that I won't see this completed, but I also get to be a part of it. And finally, I have a lot of friends and people who I'm doing this with. I'm not alone. This is not mine to hold alone. We can't hold this amount of grief and struggle and organizing alone. We have to hold it together. Finally, we're kind of getting the voices of different Vermonters um, throughout this program. And I have the sense often um, that people are talking past one another on this issue. And we will hear from uh, another rabbi on this program who undoubtedly will have a very different take. So what do you would you like them to hear from you about why you're doing this work and about what connects you to them? I think that what I want us all to hear is that we value human life very deeply. Our tradition teaches us that life is sacred and that I am moving from that place of deep spiritual practice in calling for peace. I believe that safety can look like solidarity. We are all safe when we are all safe. Thank you. My name is Fuad Alamudi. I am from Colchester, Vermont, and I'm belonging or I come from Islamic Society of Vermont. I'm the vice president of the Islamic Society of Vermont. Just a disclaimer that, you know, I'm not representing the community as a whole. Uh, everyone has a different voice. Uh, I'm here as, as myself uh, talking about, you know, my thoughts. Let me begin by asking, what have been the impacts on your community, the Islamic community in Vermont, of the conflict in Israel and Gaza? One of the uh, high school girls came, came to us and asked us, why are we not talking about this? Why are we not talking about the Palestine issue? Uh, it, at schools, everyone is talking about this. They are blaming us as Muslims. Now, this is a girl who is in, I think, 11th grade or 12th grade. I, I don't remember. She's the one who's telling, they are blaming us that we caused this issue. We need to talk. We need to get information. We need to get the history behind what's going on in Palestine. So we ended up uh, putting something together where um, someone gave a talk behind that, that, you know, gave the knowledge to the community to understand what exactly is going there. Because for me personally, I'm not from Palestine. I don't know much about the history of Palestine. Um, it will be better for someone from Palestine to give us that knowledge, that history behind it. And that happened and it helped us out big time. You know, you, you refer to the silence of the uh, Islamic Society of Vermont. Why has it been difficult to talk about this issue? Ah. <sighs> And it's it's different front. Um, most of us, um, most of people in Vermont are refugees. They came from torn countries. They came from places where there's genocides going on. 
part of that, they don't want to talk about this. You're speaking of most Muslims in Vermont. Yes, most Muslims in Vermont. They are refugees. They're from Somalia. They're from Bosnia. Uh, I know people who have lost their loved ones in those kind of wars. Uh, There are people from Afghanistan, Afghanistan, from Iraq, a lot of them. And they don't want to talk about this. That's one thing. And then after a while, it became more popular to not talk about it because there is a lot of double standard in the media. If you are pro-Palestinian, meaning that you are supporting the terrorist, for example, you cannot criticize Israel, for example. Um, and if you do that, and we have seen this in the news, uh, students, uh, people put their pictures all around the town to show that this person so that they cannot get a job. So it became a double standard that I cannot, I cannot even talk about humanity, our moral compass. I can't even come out and say, this is wrong. People getting killed is wrong on both sides. If it's Israel getting killed, it's wrong. If Palestinians getting killed, is wrong. We can't even say that. We can't even criticize our country and say our country is sending, you know, bombs where we know that our tax dollars are going to impact people. And this is the concern that we do have, that nobody wants to talk about this because they will impact their lives. Some people have jobs, like I have a a job, I have kids, I have wife. I don't want to be harassed by something that I will say that is truly my moral compass. When I see someone getting hurt, it impacts me. I I feel hurt. This is humanity. This is why uh, we nobody wants to talk about it because then. So, yeah. Sometimes now, I get we get emotional on this kind of talks. Yeah, that's one of the concern. How has the conflict affected you and your family? Um, it has. Uh, so, for example, my kids uh, they come home. Because people do talk about this at school. Uh, I have my son who is in eighth grade. He comes and talk about it. It's like, you know, calls me Baba. What's going on? You know, why this is happening? And they question, why are we not able to say anything about it? Is this okay? And I have to explain, you know, like, no, this is not okay. This is bad. We need to be firm. We need to have a voice to talk about when you see anything that is wrong with society, we need to raise our voice. The beauty about this country, the fabric that builds this country is the freedom of speech. We should be able to say what we can say with no uh, impact or repercussions of what we are saying or what we are talking about. Um, We should have a freedom of saying if something is wrong, it's wrong. We need to say that. So it does come back. Uh, my wife also, uh, you know, feels the pain. Me personally, I tend not to listen to the news. I try to focus on, you know, what's going on at my work. Uh, when I open the news, I, I, I literally cry. I do. I cry when I see, uh, I, I, or I hear, you know, stories about people online. I on my Facebook account, people post images of mothers carrying their kids. And just myself thinking about me going through that or even thinking that that happens, 
I tear up. And that's much pain I get. And this is just me who I don't even have any relatives up there. I know people personally. I know two people personally. One lives in Vermont who lost two family members. I know someone who uh, personally but doesn't live in Vermont lost 10 family members. Mm. You can't get back on that. The PTSD on this, the, the impact, you know, of the mindset, you know, the hurt, the pain people will be feeling on this. And this is just me who I don't know uh, anyone who lives there right now. But I, where, this is, where is your family I'm originally from? I'm from Kenya. Uh, Kenya. My family is originally from Kenya. Yes. You've spoken previously to express your concerns about Islamophobia. How have you or others experienced this in Vermont? So I have, me personally, I haven't experienced that much. Um, I think the reason behind it is because if I walk down the street, the only thing that people see, maybe it's my color of my skin, but hardly they'd see I'm a Muslim or I'm a Christian. Most of Islamophobia uh, it gets impacted to our sisters, our mothers who wear the hijab. Um, I know a story, for example, one of the sisters who went to the grocery store and um, she was harassed by someone who told her to go back to her country. And she said, this is my country. And she left that store to go to a different store. This is a grocery store. That person continued following her. Good thing that there are some good Samaritans out there, the good people who saw this, they see uh, this person going back and forth and uh, talking to this lady and telling her to go back. Um, this person followed this lady to another store and told her the same thing, you know, trying to harass her just because she was wearing that and she didn't like her as being a Muslim. And first thing, go back to your country. So people jumped in on that. I don't, I don't know the fully, full details of exactly what happened, but that's one of the stories that I hear, uh, you know, that impact our community here. Uh, people are want to, you know, want to put it on themselves. They, they don't want to go outside. They don't want to say stuff outside so that they get impacted, especially, especially the sisters who are wearing the, the hijab. So that's one of the stories that we see. We have other many stories. Uh, I don't know more of the, uh, many of them. I only know of this one. The Islamic Society of Vermont shares a parking lot with Temple Sinai uh, in South Burlington. And um, they do. this um, kind of unusual relationship has been highlighted uh, before as uh, something that is um, special about the, the, the two communities. What is your message is. right now to your Jewish neighbors across the parking lot? So for the Jewish neighbors, uh, and as I said, I'm not talking on behalf of the ISVT. I'm talking as individual, how I feel. Uh, I've never had a problem with them. They have been good people. They have been helping us. Sometimes we have events that they are overcrowded. The events in our masjid is, it's big. It's, it's too much uh, that it cannot hold that many people. They even offer to use their holes. So I know they are nice people. They We work cordially together. Uh, when uh, Friday prayers, our parking lot get filled up, we use their parking lot. They go at night or they have their masses in Saturday morning. They use our parking lot. 
So we work together uh, when we have issues or problems, we work together uh, with them. We've never had a quarrel with them. They're, I consider them as our friends or as my friend. I've never had a problem with them. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. 